0: If you do have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 8, please. This morning, God's word comes to us from Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. Prepare our hearts and our minds to hear from God's word. Let us, let us seek him and ask for his rich blessing on us. Father, we are needy. We're your children who are hungry for you to speak, who need you to speak, who need you to guide, to direct, to refresh, to strengthen, to help in every way. We look to you, Father, now, to open our eyes and open our ears and to allow us to see Jesus and hear his word, that we might be transformed and renewed. Please, O God, work mightily in us, and we're confident that you will because we are in Christ, and we know that in Him, and as we ask our prayers and bring our petitions before You, that You do hear us because of Him. Amen. So, Luke chapter eight, uh, beginning at verse twenty-six. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stopped, uh, sorry, stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon in the des- into the desert. Jesus then asked him, "What is your name?" And he said, "Legion," for many demons had entered him, entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they, they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Well, this text is definitely quite fascinating. It's one of those that has a lot of wow factor. This is crazy. But it might, you know, upon reading it, you might think, well, what, how is this practical? How is this practical to any of us? Because what does a naked man, demon-possessed with a legion of demons, have to do with our lives, right? Well, I'm here to tell you that there is something we have in common with this madman. But hopefully it isn't the nakedness or the demons. What it is deep down in him... In this madman has affected all of humanity deep down in all of us. This, this, this crazy guy, demon possessed, has a lot in common with all of humanity. Do you know what it is? A heart that is completely controlled by sin, enslavement, chains, a possession. That we don't even fully understand at times. And so, what we need, just like this man here, what we need is to have Jesus come and deliver us at the deepest levels of our hearts. Do you realize that we don't need, if you're sitting here this morning, you think a lot of times, well, you know, just give me some, because this is the way the heart thinks often. Just give me some how-tos. Because, man, do I ever want to figure this out. Like, okay, I've got my pen and my pad ready. Give me the four easy steps. Isn't there? Tell me what I need to do. And if we're still at the stage of thinking that we need something to do, if we're at the place where we think, what I just need to do is just figure this whole stupid thing out, because really it's so, I'm frustrated with, with where I want to be and where I find myself, and what I want to do is I want to find the four easy steps to get there, right? <laughs> so let's go. But no, it's not what we need. We don't need how to's, we don't need tools, we don't need tricks. The only thing that will deal with the root of the issue, the heart of the problem, is a person. And his name is Jesus. We need someone who can save us from the dark passions and lusts that come from our hearts. And this morning we're going to see how it is that Jesus sets the captives free. So to begin with, As we get into this text, let's remember what's going on. What just happened? We just last week, we remember we saw Jesus in the boat sleeping while the wicked storm happened on the Sea of Galilee. A storm that was so insane that fishermen who were like raised on the sea, they get it, understand, they think they're about to die. And Jesus speaks. And by his very word, the storm is calmed instantly. And so now, on the east side of the sea, the storm calms. They go east toward the garrisones. And here, on this east side, are a bunch of fields and meadows. And Jesus pulls up. There's obviously there's ragged edges and cliffs and rocks on the side of the, that part of the sea. And when he arrives, he meets a naked, possessed man with demons. But the most important thing to notice is that what does Jesus do? He approaches him. Jesus approaches some demon-possessed man who's an absolute slave to these demons. And know what? Jesus, obviously, he's not afraid. He's not afraid of anyone. He's not repelled by anyone. He knows who he is about to encounter. Jesus is God. He knows what people are thinking. He knows what's happening over there. He's heading over here and he's going to have an encounter. If his disciples had known who they're about to see, who they're about to run into, they probably would have stayed in the boat. Because we're talking about a crazy madman who's naked. He's incredibly strong. As we read in the text, he breaks chains and shackles. They can't chain the guy down. So a crazy naked madman who's incredibly strong isn't someone you want to run into, right? You're not too eager to step into his presence. Jesus has no problem. Jesus is not only afraid of this guy, he wants to set him free. And if you've ever wondered about Jesus' comfortability about approaching sinners and ministering to them, read the story again and understand who this person is. Jesus is not uncomfortable with wicked people. Jesus is not uncomfortable with people who are incredibly demons-possessed, who run around naked and are out of their minds and doing crazy things. Most of us, you know, you don't want to approach someone like that. You're running for the hills, right? Rightly so. But Jesus, Jesus approaches him. And it doesn't that say something about him? Doesn't that say something about who Jesus is and what he's like in his ministry? Jesus is not afraid or concerned, or he doesn't have issues that, like, say, oh, no, that guy's just too bad. He's just got too, you know, there's people with issues, but then there's this guy. He's messed up. And I am just, that's too much. Let's turn the boat around and head back. No, right into the middle of it, because that's what Jesus is all about. This is what he came to do. These people break his heart, and he wants to break their chains. And we clearly see this in what Jesus does next. We can see that this is what he 's about because Jesus speaks to this demon slave and the the fact that Jesus speaks to him there 's that, that in itself is incredible because of the power that comes from his word and it 's important to note the use of words with Jesus Jesus speaks to people he doesn 't he 's not some like Incredibly powerful man who goes around waving a wand or sprinkling pixie dust. It's like, yeah, I am so powerful. Let me just think you well. No, he he speaks and he communicates. And this is very significant because his word, his word, he enters into a conversation. He enters into communication and he speaks. And his word has incredible power. He has words to set them free. His words are effective. We just saw what happens, didn't we? Last week, what did we see? His words are so incredible, He, a raging storm. Jesus can say to it, peace, be still. And what happens? <clears throat> Immediately. Perfectly calm. That's what freaked them out. How is it the disciples said that somebody can speak to wind and waves, and it obeys him. Well, Jesus is God, and his word is powerful. And all he has to do to completely transform somebody is speak. So here he is talking to this demon-possessed wild man, and the demons inside of him, what do they do? They recognize who he is. Now, this is fascinating. It's something strange that I don't think none of us can fully understand. We don't... How this works, who knows? It is amazing. What did they see that the disciples don't see? They see something. So Jesus and the disciples, they look at Jesus, and the demons see Jesus, and these spirits see the spiritual realm. Now, it would have been pretty fascinating, because we see Jesus, no, we don't see him, but we think, as our eyes see him as we, uh, as we read the text, and we imagine what he looked like, but they're seeing something completely different. They're seeing behind the veil, and instantly, isn't it fascinating throughout scriptures, we could look at several passages, when when any of the demons encounter Jesus, more often than not, immediately they know who he is, the Son of God. And they say it, and he tells them, shh, don't say that, I don't want anyone to know. Because they recognize who he is. Clearly, they're able to see something, whatever it is they saw. But the most important part that Jesus' name and his word about him that we have to understand isn't so much what the demons saw behind him, but what Jesus does with his word. His word does incredible things. This is why even today when we speak in his name, when weak, broken vessels declare what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done, lives are transformed. It can immediately transform people on the spot. Just think of how powerful Jesus' word is and how he places his name and his authority on people and he says, allows them to speak and they declare. And some people declare the, the things of God as it says in the scriptures and, and they're not the best of people, but God uses them. And it says nothing about them or their ministry, but everything about God's word. His word, if it comes forward, is powerful. I was just realizing even this morning, last couple of weeks, you just hear the word. The word was read. And when God allows our mind, opens us up to the word, it hits us with power. There's power in it. He's like, whoa, just keep on reading. That is just ministering to me powerfully. Just the word. Because his word has that kind of power. There's nothing like it. A person could r- arrive here this morning as a God hating, sin loving, selfish mongrel and leave a God loving, sin hating, selfless servant. That's what God does. That's what Jesus' word does. It's that powerful. Now, it's not that his word is ineffective when it doesn't happen. It's just that that's that's how powerful it is when it does happen. And Jesus is sovereign even over his word. The word could go forward and nothing happens. Why does nothing happen? Because he sovereignly ordains that nothing is to happen. His word is powerful. And both demons and humans cannot resist it. They can't resist his word. In fact, Jesus' name has power in and of itself. Because not long after this, in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus sends out the disciples. And he gives them authority in his name. He says, I want you to go and heal the sick, cast out demons, and proclaim the kingdom. And they, they went in his name. And they come back and they're skipping, jumping for joy. And they say, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. In your name. Jesus confers authority onto them. And he sends them in his name. That's a pretty amazing thing that he can send them in his name. And they go in his name. And in his name, there's this power. It has nothing to do with them. It's Jesus' name. Amazing. Amazing. I read about this pastor once who'd, who had, uh, had several encounters with demons. And he said one time that while a, a demon-possessed woman was in his office, the demons started taking over and causing her to do crazy things. And she started getting violent, apparently. And so he calmly said, I command you in Jesus' name to be quiet and calm. And he said instantly. It was as if, just like the storm we read about last week. And he says he's encountered this on several occasions. It has nothing to do with him or anything, but Jesus is powerful. And Jesus' name is powerful. And even the demonic world, principalities, powers, and dominions, and rulers of this age, they're subject to him. Him. Nobody's special in and of themselves, but Jesus' name is powerful. Jesus is Lord. He's over it all. The demons recognize it. They understand it. They know it. This is why we should never fear man, fear authority, or any demon ever. Never, ever be afraid of demons, ever, ever. Why? Jesus is over them, and you're in Jesus. Jesus is your Lord. If demons scare you, you're not understanding demons in Jesus. You're not understanding who you are in Jesus. With a whisper in Jesus' name, demons will run. Demons will obey. Demons listen to Jesus. This is why Paul prays the way he does in Ephesians 1, chapter 16 through 23. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened... That you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What was his prayer for them? That you would know the power of his resurrection and understand who you are in him, who Jesus is and who you are in him. That you would get that and understand that Jesus' name alone, even his name, his name has power. He is, G- Jesus' words and name do amazing things. They transform people's lives. They, they subdue kingdoms. They subject demons. It's just, who does that have anything to do with us? Is it anything to do with these apostles or disciples? No. In fact, the, Jesus says the day will come when many will say in that day, call me Lord, Lord. Did we not cast out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name? And then he says, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. They didn't know him, and they were evildoers, doing things in his name like that. Clearly, it had nothing to do with them, right? And everything to do with Jesus. It's Jesus, his word, his, his, his name even, has got incredible power. So when Jesus speaks, the captives go free. And this is why we see next that G, uh, sorry, Jesus frees the demon slave, by speaking. This man was bound to do things he probably didn't want to do. It's fact, it says the demons drove him, would often drive him into these, the wilderness. He probably hated himself. He was lost, he was confused, he was disoriented, not even understanding himself. He was so possessed that he was an utter and complete slave to do what the demons wanted him to do. I'm sure he was tormented daily by these demons as they used his body to do what they wanted. It's quite fascinating, mysterious, and probably never fully comprehensible how demon possession works. We can't even figure out how our own hearts work, let alone how, how, would demon, how does that demon possession work. In that man's state, it's just, what is that like? I don't understand. I don't know. But when Jesus, this is one thing I do know, that when Jesus completely frees the man... This is what happens. Look at verse 35. If you read verse 35 and following, then the people went out to see what had happened. They heard what happened. Now they go out to see what happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone doing what? Listen here now. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Afraid? Why would they be afraid of a guy who's sitting at the feet of Jesus, who's clothed and in his right mind? You think he'd be happy? Oh, hallelujah! Wonderful! No, that's terrifying. Because if that man who they remember and know and understand was that wicked, that nasty, that evil, that bad, that... And he's sitting at the feet of Jesus... What is that? That just told them something about Jesus, and they also heard. They all. They didn't just hear. They see this guy. That that's true. They didn't see what happened, but they also heard that he cast out the demons and put them in the pigs. They're afraid. What are they afraid of? Power. Awesome, power. (laughs) And whenever we're in the presence of awesome power, we get afraid. And it's just a natural response. This man was completely enslaved and because of the word of Jesus coming to him, he was set free and in his right mind. Do you realize that outside of Christ, before Jesus sets a person free, the sinful passions completely possess our hearts to a degree that we can relate to this madman. We are enslaved. We are ensnared. You know what? It's not like sinners... We call a person a sinner because they sin every now and then? No, you're a sinner, and by nature a sinner is one that the heart is so enslaved that all it does is sin. Now, immediately our mind goes, what do you mean? It's like absolutely and completely as wicked as possible all the time? No, that's not the nature of sin. The nature of sin is absolutely and completely self-bound, selfish, so that every passion and lust and desire is for themselves all the time. And because you have that nature, sinners actually... Can, act, can constrain one another. And they constrain one another because every individual is working for their own, their own good. It's kind of like, if you ever watch, why does, why does the, an economy work where everybody is self-interested? Why does it work? Well, it works because everybody's self-interested and they want to look out for themselves all the time and so they're afraid of consequences. They want to get something from you and they don't want to get their stuff taken and they don't want others to hurt or to harm them. And because of this utter selfishness, this utter sin that they're constantly thinking about themselves and everything's about them, it constrains them. So when we think of sin, don't think of sin as like an intention to do evil towards others always. No, a, a sin by its nature is just a lusting desire for ourselves always. And the heart can't even let go of it. It's just it wants, it wants, it wants, it wants, and it's lusting and desiring for its own glory, for its own pleasure, for its own desires, for its own fulfillment, for its own exaltation. Itself, it's me, it's me. That's the nature of sin. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 3, he says, among them, among the unbelievers, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The only thing we were free from in that state, according to Paul in Romans 6.20, is righteousness. He says, we are free in regard to righteousness. Righteousness. When the sinful, the sinful heart, it cannot even do one step toward it because every intention and inclination of the heart is for self, for lust, for pleasure, for satisfaction, for glory, for honor, for power. However, Jesus sets the captives free. And if you're in Christ, then you have been set free from the bondage and slavery of sin. So what does this mean? You know, some bright scholar in the back might be thinking, well, okay, man, okay, I get this. Um, I get that you say that, but it, I, you know, at the same time, I still find it pretty tempting and pretty easy to sin. So what are you saying, Dean? How is it that I'm free from sin when I find it pretty easy and tempting to sin? What are you saying? Well, this is, where, uh, this is where we have to understand when Jesus sets a person free and what it means and how he nuances this freedom, we have to understand the nature of it. And it's important for us to do that. What is the nature of the freedom that a Christian has? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, 6 through 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, utter and complete captivity, no other choice, enslavement to sin. For one who has died has been set freed from sin. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, freedom, that's exactly what I just, Jesus came to set the captives free. Boom, there you have freedom. Wait a second, wait a second, Dean. I still have strong passions to sin at times. And where does that come from? That's a great question. This passion to sin doesn't come from the new self in the spirit, resurrected in Christ that Paul just talked about. It comes from our flesh. Because as we all know, Jesus didn't resurrect our bodies, right? How many here have been resurrected in body? Nobody. Everybody here is decaying. Everybody here is dying. Why is that? It's because you've not been resurrected to new life. The inward man, we've been resurrected by Jesus in the inward man. We have not been resurrected by Jesus in the outward man. We're dying. And this is also why in our, our, our mortal bodies in which our flesh dwells, we have a struggle, a constant struggle and battle. This is why Paul says in Galatians 5:17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So when you walk according to the spirit, you don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. When you walk according to the flesh, you don't fulfill the desires of the spirit. They're in conflict with one another. You ever feel like you're in conflict? You ever feel like you struggle? Yeah, you probably struggled all week long, didn't you? You're so glad you're here. It's like, you know, it's a struggle. Why? What's going on in me? You know, if you hear the words, Jesus comes to set the captives free, He delivers this man. This man is free. You're looking, whoa, deliverance, freedom. Boy, yeah. But why? Is it really freedom, honestly? Yes, it's really freedom because you have to understand the nature of sin. If you're if you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you every inclination of the heart continually, all the time, ever, not, not once, you were absolutely, you cannot make one move towards righteousness ever. You were you just it's you are swallowed up by sin. You were enslaved. You were a captive to sin. There's nothing else you can do, no matter what you want to do. You will sin all the time. But Jesus has set that captive free, but that captive now. Struggles with his own flesh. And so the reason why Christians who've been freed in Christ find themselves overcome by their flesh and have an actually you can have an experience of being in bondage. Why is that? It's because we give opportunity to our flesh and we present the, our members, as Paul talks about, to unrighteousness. And what ends up happening is if you ever arouse or inflame your flesh... Look out! It'll it'll take over. It's like rages within you. Have you ever heard your flesh raging? <laughs> like, but it's like the passions and desires. It's like you, you part your head saying "don't" and your body you're going "yes." All I do is I want to, and I can't. I can't. Why does it feel like I just I can't? Well, Paul says in Romans six twelve through thirteen, he says, "Let not sin, therefore." This is after what he's saying what happened to us in Jesus. What I just read. Let it not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Because when it reigns in your mortal bodies, it'll make you obey its passions. It says, do not present your members to sin as instruments of right for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So you submit, subject and submit your life, yourself, to God, everything about you. In full submission to him. You offer yourself up to him. You submit to him. All your members. But what happens if you peek? What happens if you flirt? What happens if you expose your eyes, your ears, your hands to things that you ought not to? Have you ever done that? Have you ever given your members? When he says your members, your body members, because it comes... St- temptation, you know where it comes? Through your eyes, through your ears, through your mouth, through your senses. We see, we smell, we t- you know, and, and then it, 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 boom, it starts a chain reaction. And so when our members, it comes in through our members. If we peek, if we look, if we sneak, if we, if we just, you know, you've all done that, right? Just, just a little bit. And you've aroused your passions. And then you actually know, you find yourself falling headlong. It feels like you're this madman possessed. You can't do anything but sin. However, Paul says, he talks about, even if we had read for us in Romans 8. in, In 6 here, he says, present your members unto the Lord. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit, Romans 8. And you will walk according to the Spirit. So if you set your mind on Christ, we talked about this last week on Christ, on his grace, on his power, on what who he is and what he's done for you, who you are in him, all that he is and and all that he is in his goodness and in his grace and in his love and if you as you set your mind on him, you strengthen the inward man and you find that your flesh kind of goes quiet and that your your inward man is strengthened and you walk according to righteousness at that those times. So what happens if we're living A defeated life that feels a bit like this madman in chains? Well, we're struggling with the passions of our flesh. And it isn't because Jesus hasn't set you free. It's because you're setting your mind and presenting your members before things that are arousing your flesh. And for some of us, we need to begin living in the freedom that is ours in Christ. We need to stop flirting, stop giving opportunity to flesh, and start taking serious measures to cutting off the things that come before your eyes. I'm terrified by the state we live in. Be a parent of teenagers who have so much access to so much stuff is like, freaks me out. Sorry, kids. (laughs) And I look, my heart breaks for parents, and I look out at the world, I'm like, this is scary, man. It's so scary. There's no accountability. There's just... And I know the flesh. I know the weakness of the flesh. And I know how tempting it is. And I know that it doesn't take much. It just takes a peek. I just want a peek. That's it. No. And next thing you know, you've aroused the flesh. And the flesh gets flares up. And then you follow the passions of your flesh. We, we seriously need to take measures. If you don't understand yourself, and if you don't understand your flesh... And If you don't understand how quickly it can enslave you, as Paul said, don't be enslaved again to these sins by arousing your flesh. If you're, does your flesh scare you at all? I hope so. Do you sit here, are, Do you are, you are you are you cocky? How confident are you in your skills? How do you sit here and say, "Dude, I can walk righteousness, no problem." You're a fool of epic proportions. You can't. Do you understand how easy it is for you to fall? Oh, so easy. So easy. I could dangle a a few fruits in front of you, and you're going down. Because that's how, that, that's how easy it is to entice our flesh. So if you're, if you're sitting here and you're not aware of your own weakness, you're not aware of your own flesh, you, and you think that somehow, yeah, just give me a couple how-tos and I'll figure this whole thing out, you know, you're, you're done. You cannot walk in the spirit. You need to actively be setting your mind and your heart on the things of the Lord, presenting your members unto God. You need to get up in the morning and confess to God and look to Him for all things and look to Him for the strength, for the help, the guidance, the protection and everything for you. You need to look to Him and present your members and everything about you unto the Lord. And you need to set your mind on the things of the Lord. You need to set your mind on Him. Like I said last week, if, if, you, if you're not dwelling on how, the power of God the, and the grace of God, the love of God, and if it's not beginning to fill your heart, you're weak. You're going to get weak, and, and, and as you get weak, and if you give little temptations for your flesh, you're, you're in trouble. You're setting yourself up. So I want you to understand that Jesus indeed sets captives free. But the way we're set free is not like some people think. It's not like ultimate freedom from anything, and I can walk through the world. I'm free. Nothing's going to bother me. Why? I'm free. That's not, that's not the way it works. He, he set the body of sin that was in you, in your inward man. He's, he, he set you free so that you actually, so they talk about nature changes. The nature is different so that now you desire and pursue and want to go after the things of God. But that does not mean that your flesh will not chop your legs out from underneath you, that you are not in a battle, that you are not in a struggle. So when I talk about freedom, I'm talking about this inward freedom, not from a a total and absolute, like somehow you're free and you don't have to worry. No, it's not like that. So I hope we understand that when Jesus' son set the captives free, he's setting people truly free in the place that it truly matters. But he's not setting them so free that somehow it's a walk in the park. He's going to continually teach you. You know one of the things we could ever learn is how weak you are. If you don't get how weak you are, Jesus, they've got some lessons to learn. You really understand. You don't get yourself at all. At all. And he'll expose you to the point where we come and we offer ourselves up to him. But you know what happens when Jesus sets us free? I didn't bring my watch. I was, I'm a little nervous about time right now. <laughs> <laughs> let's pray <laughs> when people Jesus sets people free you know what he, he, here's one thing I just want to quickly summarize and finish with he commissions them he just doesn't set free and walk away I, I find this fascinating he's, he's into commissioning them and giving them something to do in verses 38 and 39 of this the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him begged that Jesus, that he might be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This man passionately wanted to follow Jesus because of what Jesus had done for him. But Jesus gave him a different assignment. Jesus commissioned him to go and tell the people what God had done for them. That was different. He didn't say, come follow me. And this seems like the natural response, I think, to those who've been set free and saved by Jesus. Have you ever noticed a new Christian? They're the funnest to be around. A new Christian who's been set free and Jesus marvelously saves them. What do they immediately want to do? They want to tell everybody. They want to tell everybody about Jesus and what he's done. They want to follow Jesus. They want to serve Jesus. They simply are crazy about Jesus. And that's what I love. It's like so refreshing to be around them. It's like, he is amazing, you know, because of what he's done for me. And it's just so good because God is just so real to them. And their freedom is so real to them. And what Jesus has done for them is so amazing. You remember back, you know, if you're you're one of those who perhaps didn't grow up in the church, don't have a dramatic conversion or whatever, that's cool. That's great. But we also know, those of us who've been pulled out of darkness, kind of like this guy, more more along this guy's lines, it seems like, um, well, he's been forgiven much, loves much, and Jesus, you're going, wow, I just, I cannot believe how amazing Jesus is. Like, Jesus is so amazing. But you know what? That doesn't last. That fades away. But Jesus called us, he says, he, says, he says, go and tell everybody. It's just kind of a natural response, right? But what about, what about three, four weeks later when that kind of fizzles away? You know, now, he's, now he's, you know, maybe it takes longer than that. But after a while, the reality of life sets in, and we kind of go back to where we were. And now he has to learn to fall in love with Jesus for a million other reasons. And then, and then get excited about telling people, about what God has done for them. Do you realize that, you know, after you walk with the Lord for a while, are you excited about Jesus and what he's doing? Is, and here's the thing, is Jesus say, has he saved you last week? Did he deliver you? Did he provide for you? Did he protect you? Did he guide you? Did he direct you? What wonderful thing has Jesus done for you last week? I'm not asking you to shout out or anything. <laughs> but I want you to think about that. What has he done for you? Because he doesn't stop saving. He doesn't stop delivering. He doesn't stop being your God, your Lord, your director. You know, and... And you should see, through the darkest times of your life, if you don't see him working and moving, you're not looking, you're not understanding. Jesus continues to save. Jesus continues to deliver. Jesus continues to protect. Jesus continues to provide. Jesus even continues to let you stumble and fall and smack you in the head and then allow you to understand, like, hello, you got to learn a few things. He'll, Jesus is working. Jesus is working constantly. And I think we forget, and I, or maybe we, we, we chalk him up as something else. But we have to see, no, he's he's always working. He's constantly working on us. And you always, I want to hear, all of us need to hear, what wonderful things is Jesus doing in your life? Because that testifies to and witnesses to the goodness, glory, power, and awesomeness of Jesus to continually set captives free. It's not like you shouldn't, you know, sometimes we always do the testimony thing about the conversion and we, like, let's get the wild conversion up here because then that really shows God doing amazing things. Well, let's just, no, how about, how about the ordinary Christian? If you can't see Jesus in your life working and moving and doing great things and delivering you, can't you testify? Can you not testify to what God has done in your life? Of course we can. A lot of times we're just not seeing it. And we can become complacent about what Jesus is actually doing in our lives. May God give us eyes to see. And as we are the captives set free, and may we see that we're so much like this demon-possessed man, and we so much do need Jesus continually. And that we'd be like him as Jesus goes and says, tell everybody, tell of the wonderful things God has done for you. May that be how we as God's people live amen father we're thankful and we're grateful for jesus praise you we give you thanks our hearts are lifted up as we see and as we understand jesus and all that he's done for us all that he's doing for us all that he continues to do we praise you we thank you we thank you that so much that we are we are so much like this wild crazy possessed man but we are a lot more distinguished on the outside But deep down, there's so much similarity, and we're thankful that you have set us free. In Jesus, we've been freed, and we look to you to continually free us, to continually rescue us, to continually save us, to continually help us, to continually guide us and direct us. We look to you, Lord Jesus, and we're confident that you will save us even again today. And fill our hearts with gladness as we see your salvation, that we might proclaim it to one another and tell those around us the wonderful things you've done. Amen.